Most of you know what the phrase "killing two birds with one stone" means. Nowadays, I suppose many would suggest that it's not the most pleasant thought to have in your mind. Why would you want to kill one bird, let alone two? Many would say. But if you were in the position where it's either the life of that bird or the life of your children, because otherwise they would starve, you might view it rather differently. Nevertheless, we can all understand the principle. That with the same amount of effort that it would normally take to achieve a certain result, you can actually fulfil a second result at one and the same time. That's what I hope to do this morning. I want to address two very different groups of people with this same message. Many of you who are listening are Christians, varying ages, backgrounds, degrees of Christian experience. This message is a basic reminder of what it means to be a Christian, because I don't know how it is for you, but I find that actually I need that, and I always find it to be of great help. But perhaps you're not a Christian. Perhaps you know little of what it means to be a Christian, or maybe you think you know, but what you've previously been told or assumed is not actually the case. Well, this message will explain to you what it means to be a Christian, and we're going to use the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel, verses eighteen to twenty-seven, that we looked at earlier, and these verses will provide us with three basic points, and they are basically what we might call the irreducible minimum. There are other things which you could add to this to describe what it means to be a Christian. But it cannot ever really be anything less than this: knowing who Jesus is, knowing what Jesus did, and knowing what your response must be. Well, let's consider the first of those points: knowing who Jesus is, and that's the focus of verse twenty in Luke chapter nine. As Jesus asks of his disciples, "Who do you say that I am?" Yes, yes, I've heard all the many theories and positions which others have taken, but you see, being a Christian involves you yourself coming to a decision on this particular question: Who do you say Jesus is? Now, how you answer this question. Will determine actually whether it's even worth moving on to numbers two and three. Now, precisely at what point these things started to become clear to Peter, we don't know, but he has the right answer. Now, it may well be that he doesn't fully understand all the implications of it yet, but he understands this much. That this Jesus is the Christ of God. Well, let's think about that little phrase. First of all, Peter says that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is God's one and only. He is unique, and there is no other. Jesus makes some famous "I am" statements in John's Gospel. He says he's the bread of life in chapter six, the light of the world, 
in chapter 8. The door, chapter 9. In chapter 10, he says he's the good shepherd. And in chapter 11, the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, he describes himself as being the way, the truth and the life. And then finally in chapter 15, the vine in whom you must abide. Now, he isn't a light, a door, a way, a truth, a vine. He isn't just one of many options and let's see perhaps if Jesus is the right fit for you. And if he isn't, don't worry, there are plenty more to look at. We have a wedding coming up in our family and God and Boris willing, but I'll put my trust in God and we'll go with his will. Lots of the ladies and especially the mothers of the bride and groom have been looking for a dress. It may be that they eventually decide upon the dress, but it's only the dress for them. It doesn't mean it's the dress for everyone. Indeed, when it comes to weddings, the women are all dearly hoping that no one else has chosen their dress. At the end of the day, just having a nice frock to wear is all that matters, isn't it? But you see, Jesus here is described as the Christ of God. There is uniqueness and exclusivity in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that about him? And he's the Christ the one long foretold and expected throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures, the Messiah, God's chosen and anointed King, the Saviour, the promised Redeemer, God now in human flesh, who will come and save us from our sins. This is the one who is the fulfillment of the prophecies given to David, for example, about the one who would come after him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David is told, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, in other ways, in other words, after you've died, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. This is this Jesus. The one prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 9. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And then he is the man of sorrows of Isaiah chapter 53. As we'll see next in a moment or two as we look at something very specific and vital that Christ must do. He is the Christ. 
and he's the Christ of God. None of this is the invention of man. God in eternity past decided that he would provide for us sinful men and women this Christ. Who he would be, what he would do, all of this was settled in the mind of God long before time began. And the three persons of God, Father, Son and Spirit, were in complete agreement and unity within the Godhead. Throughout the Old Testament, God spoke of him. Indeed, all through the Old Testament, this Christ was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Elijah and David and all the prophets. Who was it speaking and moving amongst God's Old Testament people? Who was it who wrestled with Jacob, spoke to Moses from out of the non-burning bush? Who was it shut the mouths of the lions for Daniel and who appeared in the flames with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? We sing at Christmas time, He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. We sing Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him, come offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. How many do you suppose there are of whom these things may be sung? Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Yes, says Peter, this is who you are, Jesus, the Christ of God. And what about you? Who do you say that he is? And Christian brother or sister, is this your daily conviction? Is this your daily hope? Is this your waking thought and your daily focus? Is this the source of your courage and of your strength and of your joy? Is this your comfort and your peace as you lay your head on your pillow at night? That this Jesus is the Christ of God. And for those of you who as yet do not know him, if you would be a Christian, this must be your starting point too. And secondly, not only knowing who Jesus is, but recognising and acknowledging and accepting what it is that Jesus did. Verse 22. How can the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament say that there is no temptation or anguish in this world that Jesus cannot sympathise with us? Because he must suffer 
many things. You'll sometimes hear stories of great courage and self-sacrifice, maybe in times of war, or a result of some terrible accident or catastrophe, in order to alleviate some great need. Sometimes people are willing to put their own lives in danger, knowing that there is considerable risk. Those who serve in the military or in the emergency services fall into that category. Sometimes people have a, a deep sense of responsibility to go and do something to assist those who are suffering. And in going, they sometimes know that they'll be putting themselves in danger. Sometimes people are, without warning, plunged into a situation where they make a, a snap decision and without any apparent thought for themselves, hurtle headlong into danger in order to try and rescue someone. People are capable of great courage and of very noble and gallant deeds. But I want to suggest to you that the Bible shows us that Jesus is in an altogether different category. His one mission and purpose was to suffer. For if he doesn't suffer, he can never fulfill that for which the Father has sent him. From the very outset, the suffering of many things was always in view for Jesus. Jesus didn't come into this world knowing that he might be called upon to suffer or that he was at risk of suffering. No, Jesus came into this world in order that he might suffer many things. It was the reason why he came. Jesus would know suspicion, hatred, betrayal, false accusation, shame, embarrassment, ridicule, abandonment, physical torture, anguish, agony of body and soul, and ultimately death. And he would endure it all for the joy set before him as he redeemed lost sinners by paying in full the penalty for their sins. Well, let's think about that a little bit further. The Bible uses a number of different words and expressions to describe the fallenness of your heart and mine. God created us to know God, to live in loving and obedient communion with him, to live in total goodness and uprightness in a way that is a reflection of God's own perfect holiness, to embrace God as our creator king and to praise and worship him with all of our being. But we have fallen far from that state We've become riddled with a, a self-centered, self-pleasing, self-seeking disobedience. We reject that which God has designed for us. The Bible uses all kinds of language to describe this. There are three words in particular, though, which are most commonly employed throughout the Bible. The first is that simple little word, sin. It literally means falling short of that degree of goodness and holiness 
and obedience that God requires of you. And secondly, it speaks of transgression. Taking your feet and your hands and your eyes and ears and your heart to those places and to those things where God has said you should never go. But you've gone there. God says no, but you say yes. That's what it means when you transgress. And then it speaks of iniquity. And iniquity is that inbuilt rebellion against God that's in all of us. A rejection of his claim and authority over you. It's been likened to the bias that's in a crown green bowl. Simply refuses to run straight and true. It always veers off course. Now, of course, in crown green bowling, the skill in the bowler is to be able to counteract that bias and anticipate that bias so that it still gets to where they want it to go. But you and I can do nothing about this bias that's inside us, a bias towards disobedience and rebellion against God. And, says the Bible, the wages, the penalty of sin is death. God cannot remain neutral or unmoved by your sin and mine. His perfect sense of justice means that sin must be punished. That's where we get our understanding of justice from. But God has the Christ, the just one, and only one, his own son, who, as promised and foretold, came into this world to stand in the place of sinners as their substitute. Why must Jesus suffer many things so that he can stand in the place of sinners? And the suffering that they would have endured under God's condemnation Jesus would take upon himself so that God's justice might still be done. Why must he be rejected by the religious leaders in Jerusalem? Well, to demonstrate that God is ushering in a new covenant through his blood, whereby whosoever believes on him, Jew or Gentile, male or female, young or old, they might not perish, but have everlasting life and all become citizens of God's kingdom, members of his one true Israel, which is not of this world. It's the church of Christ. Indeed, even in the Old Testament, the one true Israel, even there, was the church of Christ. But that's a different sermon. But Jesus must be rejected. And he must die. Why must he be killed? Because the wages of sin is death. And if he is to pay the wages that I deserve, then he must die. Or else the penalty that I must pay is still due. And so is yours. If you've ever received some kind of penalty notice in the post, maybe a parking ticket or something like that, you'll know that it includes the phrase, 
penalty for non-payment. Either the debt is paid or you must face even greater consequences. If Jesus is going to pay the debt so that you and I don't have to face the consequences, then he must die. Anything less. And the debt is still outstanding. And you, are, you and I will be left to pay. Praise God that God has demonstrated his great love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ indeed suffered and died for us. While we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. We are made right with God and forgiven. We are justified through his shed blood and were saved from God acting in his anger against us because it's all fallen on Christ. We're reconciled to God through his death and saved by his life. Why must Jesus be raised the third day? It's because this isn't merely some form of martyrdom. This is atonement for sin. And it isn't only the penalty for sins being paid. This is sin and death being defeated forever. This is the proof and hope that in him there is newness of life and life everlasting and eternal hope beyond the grave because he is risen and he would be raised again the third day because this risen living Jesus must intercede for us before the throne of God and there in heaven stands the risen son of man bearing in his resurrection body all the scars of his sacrifice the scars of flogging of the nails, the thorns, the spear in his side, all still visible. And there he pleads before his father for all of those souls for whom he died, that he might complete their salvation and bring them safely into his everlasting presence upon his return, because one day he's coming back. And so, dear Christian, how our daily lives will be transformed if we will but keep these glorious truths about the Saviour at the front of our minds every day. These things, surely, are all those things which Paul brings into view as he closes his eyes to place himself once more at the foot of the cross and to declare, for me to live is Christ. This Christ only, because there is no other. And those of you who are unsaved, will you not join us at the cross of the Christ of God? And then one final thing. Jesus calls us to follow in his footsteps. We need to know who he is. We need to know what he did. But then you also need to know what your response must be. And this is covered in verses 23 to 26. There was a preacher in America, a TV evangelist. His name is Robert Shuler. 
he wrote a book, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. In the book he said this, It is precisely at this point that classical theology has erred in its insistence that theology be God-centred and not man-centred. In other words, he's saying that churches like ours are wrong. This master plan of God is designed around the deepest needs of human beings. Self-dignity, self-respect, self-worth, self-esteem. The pearl of great price is genuine self-respect and self-esteem. Self, self, self. If we follow God's plan as faithfully as we can, we will feel good about ourselves. God needs you and me to help create a society of self-esteeming people. Well, I'm sorry, Dr. Shuler, but that sounds to me a far cry from what Jesus said. Deny yourself. Not esteem yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me, said Jesus. Now, notice something very important here. Notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, be prepared to deny yourself. Be prepared to take up your cross. No, he says, you must do it every day. Denying yourself. What does that mean? Well, it's not self-denial. What is the difference between denying yourself and self-denial? Well, think of self-denial as self-deprivation. Self-denial is to deprive yourself of things. Jesus isn't saying that you have to do that in order to follow him. I hope you can see that there's a danger here. If it was all about self-denial, the deprivation of things, it would so easily breed a self-promoting boasting similar to that of the Pharisees over how much more I have deprived myself compared to you. No, denying yourself is the giving up of any reliance upon yourself and depending and trusting entirely upon God as you follow after, follow after Christ and walk as he walked. One of the most popular song, songs to be played at funeral services is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. Let me tell you something. There'll be no one singing that in heaven. And actually, not even Christ himself would sing it because he would say that he did it all his father's way. Denying yourself is to do it God's way. A complete and total giving of yourself to Christ. It's about him and it's about you and him. It's about seeking and following his will as you find it in his word. It's about desiring to please him, not pleasing yourself. In all of the conflicts that you'll face, 
regarding your own plans and desires and ambitions in life and the use of your time and your money and your resources, wherever and whenever there may be a conflict between all of those things, but walking faithfully with Christ, walking faithfully with Christ wins out every time. Christ doesn't in the first place want all your stuff. He wants you. He doesn't ask you to rid yourself of the content of your home. He asks that he might become the content of your heart and mind. This is what it means to be a Christian. And what of taking up your cross? This has nothing whatsoever to do with those trials and difficulties of life <clears throat> which may sometimes come your way. Because most of the trials which you have to endure are also endured by unbelievers, aren't they? Yes, they are. So what is it to take up your cross? Well, you need to remember, first of all, that a cross is a place of shame and suffering. And you must be prepared to face that every day as you follow after Christ. A cross is a place of death. It has to be the end of your former life as you've known it. The end of all your plans and hopes and dreams as they have previously been. As a Christian, every day, that's what you do as you follow Christ. It's about his will, his way, his purposes, not yours. Carrying your cross is a one-way journey and there's no going back. No one ever carried their cross out to the place of crucifixion and came back again. There's no going back. Jesus says in verse 24 that you have to make a clear choice. You may decide to save your life as it is and remain in your sin. And you'll think you've saved it but you'll actually lose it forever on that day of Christ's return and you stand before him in all the guilt of all your sin. And it will all come home to roost on that day and the penalty of your sins will be required of you. But if you will surrender your life, your life now to Christ, lose your life to Christ, you will be safe. You'll be safe in this life. You'll be safe on that final day of reckoning as you stand before him. And you will be safe for all eternity. Yes, you lose your life today in order that you might gain it for all eternity. Would you really seek to gain the whole world only to lose it? To have everything in time but nothing in eternity? Would you not let go of the world now in order that you might take hold of that which you can never lose? To take hold of Christ that you may know him and be with him forever? That's what Jesus is talking about in these verses. 
What's the alternative? Well, verse 26 is the, is the alternative. Not to be known to Christ when he returns. To be rejected by him then as you have rejected him now. What does it mean to be a Christian? Christian friends, let me remind you. We all need to be reminded. Unsaved friends, let me invite you. Let me implore you. Because it really is very simple. To know who Jesus is. That he is the Christ of God. To know what Jesus did. He suffered and died for your sins. And rose again victorious over death. To know what your, resp your response must be. To deny yourself. To repent of your sins. To take up your cross. To follow after Christ. This and this only is what it means to be a Christian.